you know, I look at some of the candidates around um, the city, um, uh, even running against colleagues that I like. And I think, you know what, that that's if I had an opponent that was like that, maybe the stakes would be a little lower for me. Right. Because I would know. That who, my who? Name be, names. I'm not. No, no, who, no, no, who do you like? <laughs> <laughs> Give me a ward. Give me a ward number. Oh, man. Who's good? Um, I want to know which of these challengers is good. This is a real, real, real thing. Real, 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 real thing. None of you have the balls to stop. Stop this. We're in the wedge neighborhood right now. 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 This is the Wedge Live podcast, and joining me today is Councilmember Jeremiah Ellison from Ward 5, running for re-election this year. Welcome to the show, Jeremiah Ellison. Yeah, thank you for having me. So let's start talking about Ward 5. Tell us how it produces such divergent figures like Belong Yang, Don Samuels, Jeremiah Ellison. Like It feels like it could go either way in any given election year. So tell us about the politics, the demographics, the place that is Ward 5 in North Minneapolis. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, um, you know, first off, I'm born and raised. I just so happen to be born and raised in the ward that I, that I represent, right? And so I, I feel like I've got a lot of perspective on this area, this community, my neighbors. And, you know, the thing that I would say is that the people of Ward 5 are very creative, uh, very diverse in their perspectives, but the voting block, the most consistent voting blocks tend to be a little bit more center, center right. Um, you know, aside from, you know, maybe Natalie Johnson Lee, you know, you've got a lot of folks uh, since I've been alive who have tended to veer more towards the center, if not to the right of center. Um, and, and I'm probably the most person, I'm probably the, you know, the most to the left that, uh, that Ward 5 has ever elected. But, you know, and I think that happened because we knocked on a lot of doors. We had a lot of conversations and we made people feel like it was worth voting. Um, and a lot of people who maybe um, are pretty disillusioned with politics. Yeah. So have you, when a, when a ward shifts like that suddenly to something people have not experienced before. There can be a backlash to that. And so have you, have you experienced that, that kind of backlash? I think I'm definitely experiencing a backlash. You know, some of it's a, some of it's a backlash. Some of it is just, I think the dynamics of, of representing ward five, it's an area where people have been denied service, I would say for a long time. And it's an area that where, where people feel like, look, we have needs here and we want to make sure that our elected leaders are, are meeting our need. You know, some of what I'm experiencing, I think, is, 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 is that inherent backlash. But some of it is very similar to uh, actually what I heard about um, uh, my opponent when I ran the first time. Right. Uh, same criticisms um, that when you have two people who have very different views, very different approaches to the job, 
getting at least some of the same criticisms, you know, that tells me that there's a bit of a cultural dynamic here in terms of trying to represent the ward and, 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 uh, and what it requires, what it takes. So what are you hearing from people? Like, I feel like the best, one of the best people to ask about what's going on in a given place in Minneapolis is the council member who represents them. You're talking to people at the doors, on phones, you're getting lots of email feedback. What are the, like, aside from public safety, obviously, I mean, maybe there is no issue other than public safety in Minneapolis this year, but what are, what are people talking about? What are their concerns? Yeah. You know, I mean, aside from public safety, and that is the number one thing, especially in, in my ward, you know, long before the past two years, um, Ward 5 and Ward 4, um, we've had to carry the burden of gun violence in this city uh, for decades, right? Um, three decades, you know, maybe longer than that. And so that's always going to be at the top of mind for, um, for folks on the north side, for folks in my ward. Uh, but when they're not talking about, you know, um, public safety, what I'm hearing most is that uh, folks feel like they're struggling to be heard in their local government. Um, you know, folks are feeling like um, no matter how much uh, I'm doing, no matter how much Philippe Cunningham's doing, uh, that that um, that we're not present. Right? That's one of those things that I hear. Uh, you, you know, you're not present. And when I try to press to see what people mean by that, you know, people mean a lot of different things. Right? Like. Um, uh, certainly, you know, I'm tempted to look, go look at my data, right? Go look at the number of complaints that we take in, in my office, the number of constituent service calls that we've resolved, then the, you know, the amount of public meetings that we've had compared to past electeds. And there really is no comparison. We've done way more engagement. Um, but folks still sort of have this feeling that you're not present. And I think that is a mix of, you know, um, people just not feeling heard um, and really wanting someone to meet that need. Uh, and right now, you know, people are looking at local elections and, and um, you know, basically asking, where are you? We have answers to that question. Like my, I have answers to that question, right? But, um, but it's just, it's not so much a, a thing that someone can prove on paper, right? It's something that they're just feeling, right? And they spread it to their neighbors and, you know, we find ourselves, I find myself combating that a lot. Yeah, I feel like when people say you're not listening, it's like it's more like you're not agreeing with me. You're not doing things the way I wanted you to, mm-hmm. and it often comes from the people who didn't vote for you, didn't support you, <laughs> didn't put you in office. That's true. That's true. It's funny. There's I have a I have a supporter who's she's very elderly. She's awesome, um, and her and I have had a lot of conversations, um, but she doesn't reach out to my office a ton, right? Like we, you know, whenever I whenever we do connect, it's because I'm reaching out and, um, and, uh, just to, just to make sure she's, um, uh, she's good, make sure she feels taken care of to make sure she's still alive. You know, she's, she's that old. Um, and, um, and she never hits me up for much and, you know, she's still super gung ho about what I'm pushing, the policies I'm pushing, the, the, you know, how I've done. She reads the paper every single day. She listens to NPR. She knows she stayed really up to speed on, on, on my, on, you know, my time in office, but then I have folks who I've, who I engage with weekly. And these are the folks who are saying, you know, not seeing enough of you, you know, not, not, you know, what, and I think that that, that, that dissonance trying to close the gap to say like, what does this person really mean? Cause this person sees me all the time. So what do they really mean? 
And this person maybe never sees me or doesn't see me that often. They feel like I'm plenty present. So, so trying to figure out what do people really mean uh, and who's saying it in good faith, to your point, right? Who's saying it in good faith versus who's trying to spread a narrative um, uh, that's, you know, politically expedient. So your Wikipedia page says you were arrested in 2013 at a minimum wage protest. Is this true? Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Talk, talk about that. How did that come about? And talk about your activism in general before you got to the city council. Yeah. Um, no, it's so funny. I remember that so well. I'm like, you say 2013, that makes it feel like it was a long time ago, but I like remember it like it was yesterday. Right. Uh, um, uh, I actually, you know, I was going to attend that event and um, my girlfriend at the time uh, had gotten looped in and she was going to get arrested. Uh, and so we were attending the event and she lets me know like day, the night before, like, oh, I'm going to go and I'm going to get arrested because that's how a lot of these protests work, right? Like you got the big crowd there, but only a handful of people are getting selected to be arrested. And I kind of had this moment of just like, okay, like, uh, you know, almost like a machismo moment where you're like, okay, my girlfriend's going to get arrested at this thing. Like I've got to, I've got to, if I'm there, I got to be arrested too. And so, um, you know, so I ended up reaching out to the organizers because I didn't want to just, I didn't want to go rogue, you know? And I'm like, hey, look, uh, um, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna sit in that circle with you guys, and we're gonna, you know, uh, I was gonna be I was gonna attend anyway, but I'm gonna sit in that circle with you guys, and I'm I'm gonna get arrested as well, and I hope that's okay. They obviously were like, yeah, more as long as you know what you're getting yourself into, <laughs> you're welcome to come get arrested with us. And so, um, you know, that was at a time where the fight for 15 almost felt like really far fetched, right? Like people were like, fifteen dollar minimum wage. It just seemed like you know, it, it was like the pie in the sky ask uh, at the time. Um, and, and I don't know how seriously it was being taken, but certainly everybody who showed up to that, um, uh, that, that demonstration was taking it seriously, including myself. And so, um, you know, it was fun to be involved in those days. I think shortly after, you know, I, I attended a number of, 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 uh, of protests regarding $15 minimum wage that year and, and, the years, um, the subsequent years following. And, um, and they were always early in the morning, tons of people, and you just saw these crowds grow and grow and grow. So, um, you know, it, w- it was a pretty simple, you know, we were blocking traffic, we were obstructing traffic uh, over in St. Paul. It was a misdemeanor. Uh, I think on paper, it looks like, you know, it says like something like, you know, unlawfully in an intersection or something like that. Now, it doesn't say anything really cool, but um, but yeah, that was, that was 2013. And, um, and, and beyond just getting arrested that time, I would say that I spent a lot of those years, my early twenties, trying to establish my, my, my career as an artist. Um, it can be really difficult to pay your bills, uh, painting murals. Uh, and I was trying really hard at the time to make that happen. And so, um, and so, uh, the one thing I felt like I could do on a consistent basis was like, put my body on the line, Right go to the march, get arrested, uh, attend this thing, attend that thing, be on the front lines, um, you know, make sure, especially as I started getting older, make sure that, um, you know, there are, there's an, a good example for young folks that might be out there. But, you know, then you get too old and the young folks become your example. Uh, you got to follow their lead. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of been my time. And, uh, in, in, in activism and, and, uh, the, you know, those are kind of some of the issues I've cared about. 
So as someone who is an artist, I wonder if you are happy as a council member, you know, is it, it's not going to be rewarding in the same way. It's a different thing. Like how are you having fun? Are you happy is what I'm asking, I guess. <laughs> like, oh. I don't know. Is it, is it satisfying to your personality type and like the way you are to be a, an elected official? You know, the short answer is it's probably not satisfying. Um, I don't think any elected official is going to tell you that they had fun the last year and a half. So, you know, I don't think I'm unique there. Right. Um, it's been difficult. Witnessing George Floyd be murdered has been difficult. Witnessing us sort of flail through this pandemic has been difficult. And having no money as a result of the pandemic or the economic downturn because of the pandemic, that's been difficult. Um, you know, for me, there are certain things about this job that I really love that I feel like no one else could really bring to the table. Uh, well, someone else, but like maybe no one else at the time that I was running, no one else who's running now. Um, you know, at the, at the center of my work as an artist, um, was, is collaboration. As a muralist, you very rarely are just painting an entire wall by yourself, right? I'm either working with other artists and oftentimes I'm working with community members, youth, whatever, who maybe don't even view themselves as artists. And I'm asking them to join with me in crafting a vision, painting a mural, you know, getting it done on a certain, certain timeline. Uh, you know, you extrapolate those things out from the mural making process and you apply them to policy making. They all still fit, right? You're collaborating with people, you're working on a timeline and, um, and, uh, and you're creating something that maybe didn't exist there before. Uh, and so to me, when the job is at its best, yeah, I'm talking at a personal standpoint, um, there really isn't a whole lot of there really isn't a whole lot of space between make it painting a mural and policy making. Um, are you listening? Um, have you created something that reflects the people you're trying to serve? You know, did they have a voice in it and did it get done? Uh, you know. Those are those are some pretty um, basic principles that that you can apply to anything. Um, when I first got in office, you know, I'm, I, I also find myself pretty in love with just just problem solving. And uh, my first year, the city was kind of at the end of a five year fight with uh, the slumlord, Mahmoud Khan. And I stepped into office with five years of just, you know, uh, this this really shitty legacy, like sitting in my hands, right? Where where Mahmoud Khan had abused a lot of his tenants, you know, by providing this really substandard housing, but the city hadn't necessarily centered the the uh, the tenants in their fight with Mahmoud Khan. They sort of were, you know, centering the conditions of the buildings. They weren't really too concerned with do the tenants have a place to live? Do they have a safe place to live? Are they going to end up on the street? If we take adverse act, when we take adverse action against Mahmoud Khan, you got hundreds of units. Yeah, Mahmoud Khan was like not providing good housing. But does do those, you know, couple hundred people are they better off on the street? Because depending on how we treat that that landlord, those people are going to end up on the street. It was a pretty high stakes problem to solve, and I didn't have a lot of time to solve it. Now. You know, at least in the immediate aftermath of like rehousing people, we were working to rehouse folks. Um, we were working with a certain subsect of the group to to try to buy their homes from 
uh, their landlord. And the city then bought 10 homes that we're still owning and operating uh, where we housed folks who were being displaced by the city's action against Mahmoud Khan. And these were all things that were pretty out there, helping tenants buy their homes from, from the slumlord, buying homes on behalf of tenants, and then you know working with them on, on their living situation and, 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 and all of that. Um, it felt good to sort of jump right in and create solutions that hadn't existed at the city before. So, so it's probably a good way to jump into uh, housing policy in general. I think, were you, you and Bender uh, behind the housing first? Policy? Yeah, the renter first. Yep. For regulatory services, which is kind of, I don't know if that was motivated by the Mahmoud Khan situation. For me, it was. I don't, you know, Bender has a longer career than I have. And so she may have seen her own series of slumlords and, you know, evictions and all that stuff that, that were motivating her. But for me, Khan was definitely a big motivator for, for, for creating that policy. And so I've heard Lisa Bender talk a lot recently about how long it takes to get some of these housing policies through, especially when it, and, and you've talked about it as well related to rent control. Mm-hmm. Talk about, uh, so there's, I don't know, four potential paths were on the table for rent control. There was two on the pet- citizen petition-based side and two on the council legislative process-based side. It would take like a whole podcast to kind of explain, <laughs> explain the differences uh, yeah. between those. But talk about because i'm naturally skeptical of direct democracy i kind of feel like i want to elect good people take it off my plate and hopefully they have hashed things out talk about Mm -hmm. why a in the citizen petition based version did not pass it's not going to be on the ballot this year but talk about why it was important to have that as part of the the rent control uh package of uh ways to enact it. Yeah. I mean, there's a couple of different ways to look at it. I would say that, you know, um, the truth is that we're dealing, we're in a year where we might deal with a lot of backlash, right. In terms of, you know, progressive council comes in. Um, you know, I think that by and large, you, you grade this council by the policies that we've passed and what you're going to see is an incredibly, innovative council that passed a lot of good policy, but, you know, nobody gets to pick when they're governing uh, during a pandemic. Uh, nobody gets to pick when their political opponents do a better job at creating, creating bad narrative than they do, right? And so this is the, this is the result, right, is, is we're potentially facing this backlash. Um, and uh, and I, I believe in rent stabilization as a policy um, enough to say, look, if 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 people get elected who don't believe that you have a right to live anywhere i want you to have tools at your disposal to still assert your right to live somewhere to live affordably right um you know that's sort of one angle i think another angle is that the state law is completely untested i i think that nobody's ever made an attempt they sort of have this mushmouthy wording at the state level that says, you know, most states say you can pursue this policy or you can't pursue this policy. And our state says you can't pursue this policy unless X, Y, Z. 
So we're, we're working our way through the X, Y, Z and, um, and, uh, and allowing the people to sort of, um, have an option to pursue this policy, I think, um, is a good first or second option should, um, should policymakers not be able to figure it out or take too long? Should the courts come back and decide? Let's say the, let's say the city council, um, does crap draft a policy, does send it to voters to be voted on. And a judge says, actually, you know, this has to be, you know, citizen petition, you know, who knows? My point is that I don't know. The city attorneys don't know. Um, I don't think anybody at the state legislature really knows. Um, I think that this is an untested state law. And the only way you get clearer definitions in for state laws is through um, court decisions. Uh, and so, uh, so with there being so much uncertainty, I thought having as many avenues open as possible was the best way to proceed uh, in terms of getting something done, getting a good result. And the landlords are going to sue over everything. Oh, man, everything, everything that you pass. Everything, everything. You know, one, uh, <laughs> one of the ar- one of the arguments that I found persuasive on just having a citizen petition uh, pathway was that it takes so long to get housing policies through, and so yeah. I think Andrew Andrew Johnson, who voted against it, did make the argument that he thought at least it was a thing hanging over the city council's head. It would have been a thing hanging over. It won't be because it won't be on the ballot. Right. But it would have been a motivating thing for council members. Well, if you don't enact a good what you think is a good policy, the people will push their own policy, so get to it. Right. Right. Um I I think that's an incredibly persuasive argument. Um, you know, it does suck that we couldn't we had seven votes, right, which is a majority, that's usually a win, but you know, the mayor didn't want to see um, this policy come through. I don't think he wanted to see either one of them come through. We didn't really have a veto, uh, uh, you know, a veto-proof majority here uh, on the second ballot. We had seven. We had a simple majority. And um, and when you've got a mayor who is, you know, um, you know, strongly against this policy, I guess is the only way to really put it. Um, you know, and I don't think it's lost on anyone that, you know, he's, you know, he, he, he's able to finance his campaign in large part because he's got the, the interests that don't want to see these policies. Um, the people who don't want to see, who don't represent the most vulnerable and don't want him to represent the most vulnerable certainly spend a lot of money on his campaign in order to keep him in office. And so, you know, um, you know, he'd be foolish to not sort of, um, heed their warning. I'd be foolish to not try to serve the most vulnerable people because that's who I represent. Uh, and so, um, and so, yeah, it, it doesn't feel good to not have that policy, but I will say my first day in office, I'll never forget mentioning rent control to a group of a mixed group of some of my colleagues and, and some city staff. And I mentioned it and the whole group of people just, uh, uh, busted out in the laughter. They just started laughing. <laughs> well, good luck with that. Right. Like it was just like a total dismissal. Right. Um, and I was told outright that this policy would never happen, right? So just because I didn't get, and it's not just about me, but just because we didn't get everything we needed, the fact that we're having any provision related to rent stabilization or rent control um, on the ballot at all is a major victory. 
And I don't want to see, I don't want folks to feel like, you know, um, losing the citizen petition vote um, um, or only having a simple majority, uh, uh, I'll put it that way, um, and not being able to override a veto means that, um, you know, that's a nail in the coffin for rent stabilization. People are going to be able to vote on this. And if it passes, um, I'm going to keep fighting for it um, no matter what. So that comes back to the, for me, the stakes in this election are pretty high because I see a lot of candidates who don't have an agenda. Like I will, I'll refer to them as conservative candidates and people will say, well, they're not conservatives. They're center left Democrats, but it's a lot of candidates who don't have an agenda. If they show up at city hall, they're, they're not going to have much of anything to push. They want to stop things. They don't want to change things. And so you're running against a candidate who I think may have voted for Donald Trump, who comes across as pretty conservative on on housing issues. I watched a Q&A he did with landlords. He He's going to be very different than Jeremiah Ellison if he managed to be elected. Mm-hmm. He came out of the convention process looking like he had some strength as, as a challenger. Mm-hmm. So uh, should we? Make us feel better about your chances in November. Yeah, well, you know, and, and I, talk about talk about the stakes too, because that, yeah. that's how I started the question. But yeah, you know, I think I think the stakes are high for the North Side all the time. We we have had enough, you know, and I'm sorry to insult my predecessors, but I think we've had enough keep the lights on kind of kind of electeds in our war. We've had enough sort of like I'm just going to keep this seat warm. And, um, you know, vote yes with the majority and uh, keep the machine ticking. You know, the reason I ran is because I felt like we needed an aggressive push in a new direction. Um, one that didn't just have us hobbling along as, you know, the perpetually uh, violent side of town, as the perpetually poor side of town, as the perpetually disinvested side of town until gentrification smacks us in the face. That's not the North side that I wanna wanna live in. That's not the way I wanna see my neighborhood go. Uh, again, I don't think that you have to be born and raised somewhere in order to really care about it, but I am born and raised here, right? And I do care about this place. And so um, I felt like I'm gonna come in and patience is not gonna be a virtue that I have in office, right? I'm gonna be aggressive about getting policies done. And you know, I've gotten a lot of policies passed Um, I didn't have a goal of like having authored the most policies by the time, by the next election. But I think that between me and like, maybe, maybe Philippe and a few others, like we're, we're competing for having drafted, you know, having our names on the most policies because we want to get that much done that quickly. Um, so, so the stakes are high to me, right? Um, the stakes have, 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 have not really been higher, not just because I'm on the ballot, but because there doesn't seem to be anyone as as um as thoughtful or inventive or creative as me as an opponent right um you know i would i would kill to have the equivalent of like a um of like a you know i you know i look at some of the candidates around um the city um uh even running against colleagues that i like and i think you know what that that's if i had an opponent that was like that Maybe the stakes would be a little lower for me, right? Because I would know that my who, who name be, names. I'm not. Who, who do you like? 
<laughs> Give me a ward. Give me a ward number. Oh, man. Who's good? Um, I want to know which of these challengers is good. Well, you know, I think... Um, I'm not finding anything to feel optimistic about. I'm flattering a lot to I mean, feel... On, the, feeling, on the conservative you know, side, I mean... Right. No, no, not on the conservative side. Is this Cam, no, no, no. Cam Gordon? Are we talking about Cam Gordon? You know, I think, I think you know, Cam's... Cam, I love Cam. Cam's facing a person Cam. who I think would be also pretty good in that role, at least from a policy perspective. You know, obviously that ward's going to have to make that choice. Um, you know, uh, obviously I think, you know, wards nine and, and 10 are looking really good. Um, I know those aren't challengers, but, um, you know, uh, in 10, there's a number of candidates, you know, um, that look really good. I think are going to be really good for that community and for the city. Um, ward one's looking really good. Um, in terms of, you know, who's, who's uh, stepping up to, to, to be a challenger in that ward. So, um, you know, I think, uh, I think that these are, you know, these are not problems that I have. I, I have the, op- I have, I'm my, you know, my opponents, um, they don't have an agenda, right? And they don't have a platform that anybody could hold them accountable to. I've got a platform that people could hold me accountable to, right? Um, I, make sh- I make sure to have that. Um, I want people to go back and, and, and list the things that I didn't get done. Right. Um, you know, I, I, I watched this documentary called Gideon's army, uh, uh, a while ago. It's about public defenders. And there's this one public defender who like he, um, um, you know, he, he like gets, I think he was like, he gets like the names of every person who he thought, um, uh, that he defended that he thought shouldn't have gone to jail. Every single one of them whose case he failed, he like got a tattoo somewhere on his body, right? Like, I'm like, I don't want to be that extreme, but I want people to be able to say, hey, you know, every <laughs> single policy that you didn't get done, you got to get that tattooed on your chest, man. Like, this is like, we need you working hard, right? Good idea. I'd like to see that. <laughs> so um, I would want that list to be incredibly short, hopefully not not to exist at all. So I'm going to write, I'm going to write a platform that people can hold me accountable to uh, I'm going to have ideas, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to have a belief in my community. Uh, I'm not going to promote some kind of despair narrative, some kind of deficiency narrative about the people that I live around and the people that I grew up with, people that raised me. Um, that's really important to me. Um, I will say, you know, when people feel like, um, when people feel like uh, things aren't getting better, Right. And and when you've got an increase in gun violence, it can it can be hard. It can feel like, you know, hey, this just no matter what, no matter what good is happening. When you're when you're living through through elevated gun violence, like nothing feels good. Right. Um, you know, I'm feeling that from people as we have conversations and. Um, and uh, and I'm hoping that what I can show people is that. You're going to have ebbs and flows. Not, uh, not every aspect of the condition of the neighborhood has to exactly do with what the council office is doing. But that when it comes to housing stability and when it comes to economic opportunity, because that's one thing that I've, I really feel like I've been able to area that I really feel like I've been able to innovate, even though I know people probably don't think of me as like a business friendly um, uh, uh, elected. Um, but when it comes to yeah housing and economic development, when it comes to just advocacy for um, uh, people who have been really disenfranchised, when it comes to um, thinking about how we address public safety in the long term so that we don't have 
things like George Floyd happening so that we don't have a police force that lies about the number of untested rape kits they have or that gets caught injecting people with ketamine against their will. Um, when I look at these things, you know, I think I could do a lot of good for my community still. Um, but it's going to be on me to convince people of that. Uh, I think we're doing well. I think, you know, uh, the truth is that the past year and a half has been really exhausting. And some of my colleagues have, have fared better than, than, than I have. Uh, but I think that you see that ex exhaustion um, showing up on every single incumbent, especially those of us who, who, who have really um, taken, a, taken a stand um, uh, for something. Um, you know, you're seeing the exhaustion. It's hard to hold the line on progressive policy and say, you know, look, we don't want to, um, we're not going to tolerate um, good enough. We're not going to tolerate things like um, George Floyd being just simply the cost of doing business when it comes to public safety in our, in our city. Um, when you take a stand, you know, you invite some, some pretty strong enemies. And so um, I probably didn't do everything I needed to do in order to be in a good condition for the convention. I think that I can just simply admit that, um, you know, uh, <clears throat> had a lot of people who showed up for me, the people who did show up for me, really strong believers in this campaign, um, really strong believers in the policy that I've been able to pass. Um, but I think that there were a lot of other people who would have been willing to, 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 to caucus and, and, and attend convention for me um, had I simply put in the time to have conversations with them. And, you know, with the trial going on, I was spending a lot of time up in Brooklyn Center because of uh, the, the, the killing of Dante Wright. Um, and I just felt exhausted. And there were nights where I should have been making calls that, where I wasn't making calls. And so, you know, those are some of the things that I had to deal with. Um, Luckily, we were able to prevent, you know, I think a, a really disastrous outcome. And I think it really did light a fire under a lot of my supporters, under me. Um, and, uh, and I was able to get a, you know, get the campaign rolling in, in a way where we're starting to feel like a well-oiled machine. We're starting to feel like, hey, we're, we're out on the doors. People are seeing us. We're creating the most presence out here. Um, and... Uh, and the more time I spend basically side by side to my opponents, I think the more people realize there's substance in what I'm doing. Um, and they're just for one reason or another, isn't a lot of substance coming from coming from my opponents. I don't know if that makes anybody feel better. Well, I mean, I underestimated Victor Martinez, too. I can't blame anyone else for underestimating Victor Martinez, but surprisingly, he had support, which was hard for anyone to imagine. Uh, so I, I pushed public safety towards the end because every episode we talk, we're talking about public safety. It's on everyone's minds mm -hmm. for good reason. So let's, let's jump into public safety. And something I want to know from everyone is how do we talk to the people in the middle and convince them that voting for the public safety charter amendment, creating this department of public safety investing more power in the council to direct policy for that department. Why is that the way to go? Yeah. Um, you know, that's sort of the question that we're all sort of wrestling with, right? As, uh, as folks who are on the ballot, as activists, as, as, you know, as folks who want to prevent the next Jamar Clark, the next George Floyd from happening. I, I hate to put it in those terms because that maybe feels over simplistic, but 
and it is oversimplistic. There, there, there is a much deeper legacy of, um, of abuse and, and harm um, from our policing institution than just those two incidences. And, j- and there's also a deeper legacy of abuse and harm than just, um, than just police killings. People don't distrust our system because of police killings alone. I mean, you know, I talked about, um, you know, untested rape kits and ketamine. Um, people lose faith in this system slowly because of their one-on-one interactions with police on a day-to-day basis. <clears throat> I think that a lot of folks who are I think understandably frightened by the increases in gun violence, and this is happening all over the country. A lot of the people um, who have been understandably frightened by the increases in gun violence, um, they uh, they want to believe that what happened last year, the reason people were upset and protested, was an anomaly. They know it's not, but they want to believe that it was an anomaly and that we won't, we simply just won't get there again. The truth is that we can keep people safer than we have before. Because if you look at the history of MPD or any police department, we haven't done a good job of keeping everyone safe to this point. You know, I think that um, if we don't pass this charter amendment, a lot of the ideas that even those people have, folks who are nervous about voting for it, right? Let's just fire all the bad officers. I hear that one a lot. you know, we need to do better recruitment. Um, we need the, the chief needs better tools to, to reprimand people. Um, none of that happens if we don't pass the charter amendment. Oh, we need to fix the we need to fix the uh, the uh, uh, the contract, the federation contract. A lot of people say that there is nowhere to go. There is no leverage to create when it comes to negotiating the police contract without changing the charter, uh, because if there are officer minimums. And if they know that they are the only means of public safety, the sole, pu- the sole means of public safety, then they're holding all of the cards. But if we can diversify how we keep people safe, if we can expand how we keep people safe, and we can say, look, if, um, if the Federation is not going to be that institution that is interested in keeping people safe, then we can go create something else. If we don't have that option because of the minimums, then, um, then there's nowhere to go in terms of contract negotiations. You know, the, the, the other thing I would say is, is that, um, you know, most people will admit that there are, um, that even though there are things that they believe the police should be doing, right? I mean, I think, at least as of right now, there's probably things that I believe the police should be doing, right? We should solve murders, right? There should, there should be someone to intervene during an active shooter situation, right? These things should exist. But most people will admit but that is not most of what the police end up doing, right? And that there are things that the police definitely should not be doing. Um, responding to mental health calls is not something that the police should be doing. Um, uh, addressing homelessness through harassment is not something that the police should be doing. Trying to solve the opioid crisis is not something that the police should be doing. We should create services that address those things. They're still emergencies. 
Um, they're just not police emergencies. So I think the union negotiation leverage argument is something you don't hear very often, but I think it's it's persuasive because that that minimum staffing provision was inserted by the police union in 1961. Mm-hmm. And yeah, if they if they can say you're all we've got and by it's by charter, so mm-hmm. go to hell right. <laughs> when it comes to this contract. Um, right. And so when I'm out in the world, the majority of like the police responses I see, it feels like is mental health responses. Somebody's in mm-hmm. distress on the sidewalk and yeah. the police are there to, to provide assistance. Right. So, and we've relegated mental health as like maybe niche, right? We get like five people who do it during business hours, <laughs> you know, right. when we do create these programs, when it should really be a, a, a robust program. Um, that is 24 seven that has responders that, you know, um, you know, and it's crazy, you know, you get this response too, when you're talking about, Hey, look, we, we need to change the way that we're addressing emergencies. Um, you know, nobody's advocating that we not address emergencies, right? We still have emergencies in our city. They got to go addressed. Um, but people, they, they want to know, Hey, what exactly is this going to look like? Every kink, every, everything, everything worked out. Like, we don't have every kink with the police worked out. We don't have, and we certainly didn't have every kink worked out when we created them, right? <laughs> I mean, um, when, uh, uh, you know, the legacy of policing is is a really long one, um, you know, that basically started off as vigilante gangs that became formalized um, to what we have now. Um, if we're doing any better than that when it comes to creating a mental health response, I think I think we're starting off on a good footing. Let's talk about these kind of the division of authority at City Hall, because that's a big part of the public safety charter amendment, the strong mayor charter amendment. It's like, why, why is it a good idea? It's, this is something I think is a good idea because I'm a fan of the council process, public hearings. I think it's good to have like Jeremiah Ellison and Lisa Goodman and Cam Gordon in the same room with Lisa Goodman, like throwing punches and people hash out their differences and it's it's out in public and you hear mm-hmm. the best of each side of the argument and you, you come up with something and you vote on it. So I'm a fan of investing more power in the council, giving them policymaking authority. I think it's it's transparent. It's good government. But explain to us why this is a good idea. Well, <clears throat> you know, we have. um I don't think it will surprise anyone to, to, to note that we have massive racial disparities in our city. Um, and in our city, you know, we're still pretty segregated. And so um, racial disparities end up being geographic disparities, right? Just, you know, uh, as, as it were, you've got areas of the city um, like the North side, but not only the North side where folks um, don't necessarily, they don't have any less need or right to representation, but folks don't vote at the same rate as folks in wealthier parts of the city, right? Um, And so by having, you know, the council have some pretty strong legislative authority, by having the council be able to, um, uh, you know, I I think enact some power on behalf of our constituents means that um, we level the playing field. Um, 
you know, Southwest is still going to have an outsized influence on local government than, than maybe the North side. Um, but we can close that gap um, a little bit when you have the system that we have now. Uh, and you can definitely start to close that gap if the council can start to have any policymaking authority over the police period, right? Now, if you erase that, right, if you, if you essentially say, okay, we're going to set the council over here and we're going to defer, defer all powers to the mayor, and you're essentially doing it because you don't like this council and some people like this mayor, right? People on the charter commission like this mayor. Um, you know, uh, then what you're going to do is you're going to, con it's just another way to concentrate power into the wealthiest parts of the city. Because why is any mayor going to, uh, w who has total power, going to defer um uh, you know, a significant chunk of their authority to a portion of town that can't really keep them in office, right? Um, that's what, you know, I think that that's what's really being proposed here uh, when we're changing the government structure. And it's just a really sneaky way, you know, there was an effort to do this a couple of years ago, uh, or, or something like this, but effectively the same thing, where they wanted to reduce the number of council members like down to like six or seven, and then have three citywide council members. Um, uh, I don't know if you remember that coming to the charter commission. Um, yeah. and, um, and it was, a, it was a ridiculous proposal, but it basically was a more, um, I think it was a more transparent, um, and maybe more obvious, uh, uh, uh version of, of the strong mayor amendment. So, uh, one thing I've been frustrated by is that we can't seem to come to an agreement about the way that we got here. I have seen you and the council. So you argued against the, the funding for contracting with outside agencies, but it was ultimately approved. So mm -hmm. the mayor has been provided with money for police. Council has not mm -hmm. cut police staffing. Cops have mm -hmm. quit. Right. And MPD is under investigation for corruption, abuse, racism, a pattern of it, not just George Floyd. Right. Obviously, they killed by the George state and Floyd. by the federal, federal government. Yeah. And so, I th there's a lot of people out there who seem to think we are in this place because the city council stood on a stage that said defund. Sure. Rather than following that line of events that that brought us here, the destruction, the uh, it bl blaming it on the council as yeah. if there was nothing. To precipitate it. I can follow that line. And I've been humbled a lot in the last year about the things I don't know about the future and, sure. <laughs> and how it's going to go. Like, I don't know. I'm powerless in the face of all this. <laughs> one, thing, one thing I do know is how we got here. And I think it's important yeah. that we agree on how we got here as we decide how we're going to move into the future. Yep. So I guess that's a way of asking, how do we all get on the same page and it's an impossible question. How do we all get on the same page about how we got here? Yeah. Well, look, there's a reason that, you know, um, you know, there's a reason that uh that 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 political operatives get paid the kind of money they do. And the city of Minneapolis has seen political operatives in the mayor's office, in our mayor's office, political operatives in the you know national uh, state and national GOP, 
and political operatives, even on the Democratic side, um, pumping out this narrative um, that uh, that uh, George Floyd didn't happen. You put blinders on there. Pandemic stuff's not really happening. Put blinders on there. Um, this economic downturn due to the pandemic, just 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 totally ignore that. You're living it every day and just ignore it. Um, your city spontaneously combusted in this council's fall, right? That's all you got to know. That's all you need to believe. And, you know, um, I give the mayor a lot of credit for helping people compartmentalize the truth and, um, and, um, and, and sort of forget his role in, 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 um, in all of this, um, and forgetting the pandemic's role in all of this, right? And forgetting the economic downturn's role in all of this, um, you know, uh, it's 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 quite a leap to say that the Minneapolis City Council is responsible for, um, uh, you know, rises in gun violence in New York and Chicago and like cities in Arizona. But they've somehow like convinced people of this. Um, I think that um, all I can do is continue having one-on-one -on -one conversations with my neighbors, get through sort of this, this battle that we're in right now, um, and, and, and try to address, I guess, what we'll call the meta-narrative uh, over a longer period of time. Because, you know, one of the things that I find so hilarious in a really dark and, and frustrating way is that... Um, you can have a group of citizens working around the clock, council members working around the clock to ensure that there is a pathway to transform the way that we keep people safe in our city. And yet the New York Times can write an article declaring that effort dead. And that's the truth as far as the public's concerned, right? And what's the New York Times interest anyway, right? The guy who wrote it knew he was lying at the time that he wrote it, but he just didn't care. He needed, he needed, he needed an angle that nobody else had, and that was the angle that he chose. So am I ever going to be able to compete with a lie on that scale? Probably not. But what I can do is have individual conversations with my, uh, with my neighbors and, um, and, and, and continue to do the work. Um, look, one thing that people maybe don't want to address, because I am I am glad that we were able to prosecute and convict Derek Chauvin, right? I'm glad that that happened. Um, you know, uh, I'm I'm glad that that you know my dad was able to play the role that he played in making that happen. I'm glad that um, uh, that we live in a city where um, you know where where folks were really invested in that outcome. Um, uh, uh, but at the same time, I think we would be fools to ignore the fact that Jason Van Dyke murdered Laquan McDonald in Chicago, um, uh, uh, just a couple of years ago and that he was convicted of second degree murder and 16 counts of aggravated assault, I think in 2018, maybe, right? So 
for Jason Van Dyke to have murdered Laquan McDonald in Chicago, Chicago's not far from here. And for him to have been convicted of second degree murder and the fact that we all sort of forgot by the time that, uh, but just two years later, two and a half, three years later, right? Who's to say that we don't have another situation like George Floyd um, at two to three years from now? And in 2024, sure. or, or sooner, yeah. and in 2024, you know, we convict some single officer of second degree murder in whatever city in America. And we all cheer and pat ourselves on the back and declare it an end to police brutality. And that all we got to do now is get these pesky activists and do-gooder electeds out the way so we can increase more police now that they're all good now. Um, who's, who's to say that that, doesn't that that doesn't happen? You know, me, I am trying to prevent that from happening. You know, I can be, I can be happy about the outcome of Derek Chauvin, but I'm almost sad because, because the fact that Jason Van Dyke is not a household name, um, the fact that Laquan McDonald is not a household name um, just three years, two, three years later, tells me that two year, three years from now, um, nobody's going to remember Derek Chauvin. Nobody's going to remember George Floyd if we allow it. Um, and that what you're going to have is, um, is another incident, uh, another trial, and another round of celebration. That doesn't change anything. Yeah, and it it just it happens with regularity. It's you don't know when it's going to happen, but you can predict it. It will happen again here in Minneapolis. It's not a one time thing. That's the thing. It's it is the current system that has failed with regularity. It just happened to explode on us the most recent time. Yeah. So th the risk for me is in thinking it was a one-time thing and just kind of standing pat and happy on it. Okay. So we talked a little bit about your activism. I remember you coming to the city council and turning your back on the city council. <laughs> so thinking about the guy who did that and where you are now as a city council member, what have you learned about the way city government works that would be useful to that person that that person did not know at the time they would maybe be useful to a candidate who's running now what have you learned in your time in office that maybe surprised you or would be useful for the rest of us to know yeah um <clears throat> that's a good question um I think I underestimated just how hard um, the institution, or you, you see, even just say the status quo, would fight to preserve itself. I think I really, really? you know, you, 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 you think underestimated. You, I think I underestimated. I mean, I thought <laughs> they'd fight hard, but I, I thought I, I really underestimated just how hard, you know, this institution would fight to not change. Um, it, it's been. Um, you know, it's been enlightening. Um, uh, you know, one of the things I think that has, um, you think that, especially when you're idealistic, you know, like I contend to be, you think that the best ideas 
will be kind of like self-evident and they'll emerge if only you could express them really, really well, right? Maybe the biggest problem with good ideas is that people haven't explained them well enough in the past, right? You can kind of convince yourself of that. Um, it is hard as someone who is uninterested in amassing power, it is hard to wrap your mind around the fact that things get done when you have the power to get them done. Whether that's the votes, whether that's the money, whether that's, you name it, right? Um, there's a degree of persuasion that is never going to, going to, um, gonna, gonna penetrate this system, right? You just have to have the votes and you just have to sort of grin and bear all of the, all of the, the attacks that you're going to get. The other thing I think that I kind of knew, but was really affirmed during my time in office is that, you know, there's this perception and you hear it when you first get elected too, right? Like, okay, now you're elected and you're a part of this system, you know, oh, you know, you went from being outside the system, fighting the system to being the system, right? And you start to internalize that. You think like, yeah, yeah, like now I'm the system. Now I'm in it. I'm... If you are not ready to sort of uh, melt into the beast, into the machine, right? It will regard you as a thorn, right? And it will try to oust you as such. And what, and, and, and I think that especially this past year and a half, you know, what a lot of us have been experiencing is sort of uh, this system sort of, um, you know, needling at us, trying to, trying to expel us from its foot um, because it, it doesn't regard us as in charge. It regards us as an annoyance because we are, um, uh, you know, fighting for changes that the system doesn't want, isn't ready for. Um, you know, if you ever wanted any more evidence that these systems don't change, just like take a look at the uh, the uh, the Chicago Commission on Race Relations. Um, this was a report that was conducted um, by a team that the governor of Illinois put together back in 1919. Uh, I believe it's called. You might have to Google it, but I believe it's called the Chicago Commission on Race Relations, and. Um, and uh, in 1919, you had a series of race riots resulted in some massacres, some murders that, uh, that occurred during these race riots. It's referred to as Red Summer. And Chicago wasn't the only city where these riots occurred, but it was similar to 68, where it was kind of a string of, of, city, a string of riots that happened, um, uh, you know, because of unemployment, because of racial discrimination, because of all of these reasons. And you know, in the city of Chicago, the police were a part of committing a lot of the killings that occurred in these black neighborhoods. Right? It wasn't only black people who were killed, but it was, um, but but of the but it was black people who were targeted, and of the black people who were killed, uh, police were seen to have played a played a role in that. And this commission, if you read through enough of it, you know, it's kind of written in this old timey language. It's it can be quite funny to read. Actually, um, it's just it's just not how a report would be written like uh, these days. Uh, but you, you'll notice that, that this commission um, really sets the groundwork for how we've discussed police reform for the past hundred plus years, right? 
we've been talking about, you know, police need to be nicer, police need to be less brutal, police need to be fairer for a hundred years. <laughs> and nicer, fairer, less brutal has never happened. But we keep going back to this well, even though it's empty, even though it's been empty since 1919. And we keep repeating talking points that are a hundred years old and we don't even know. We don't even know that we're repeating hundred year old talking points so that when someone comes along and says, look, we need to stop having the same conversation we've been having for a hundred years, that person is gonna be regarded as reactionary. And that's what we've been experiencing. Um, you know, I don't think that anybody who is tired of the current reform conversation um, I don't think anybody who's tired of the current reform conversation is being reactionary. If anything, even if they don't know the history of, uh, you know, Red Summer in Chicago in 1919, um, they are having the most rational response to um, a conversation we've been circling for 100 years. And they are trying to change the, 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 the topic of discussion, go a little further. Uh, so, yeah. And the reaction on the other side feels like we've barely moved the needle in terms of change. Like, I don't, I don't want to discount the work you've done and the city council has done to start funding some of these efforts and the, like the years, even pre-George Floyd, of studying that and kind of plotting out what that might look like. I don't want to take that away from you. But it, it feels like we have barely moved the needle and like the police are still here. They're still funded. Uh and yet the backlash is so strong. I was talking to Erica Mauter on the last episode about Ward 11 and how people from South Minneapolis would call in and talk about how they're afraid to walk their dogs. And I always look up the neighborhood crime stats when I hear these things, either in like Ward 7 or Ward 10, some of the nicer neighborhoods in Ward 10 and Ward 11. It's like there's hardly any crime there. Like yeah. you had a little bit of taste of what Ward 5 has had forever mm -hmm. and the backlash is tremendous and we have barely moved the needle yeah i mean if anything in a very sneaky way we've kind of regressed right like the status quo thinkers by promoting this idea that we've destroyed everything it's given them kind of a blank check to advance a lot of um and pour a lot of money into things that they that they've always wanted to pour money into, right? Uh, so we've actually, I think, you know, when you actually take an account of, of all the federal money, all of the money that during the trial, when you look at the COVID money, which the, the recovery dollars, which I didn't, I couldn't even bring myself to vote for. When you look at all of that, we probably spent way more money than, we, than, we, than we've ever spent on law enforcement in the city of Minneapolis in a long time, right? Probably spent more mm -hmm. money probably had more cops on the street. Um, you know, I think that, uh, yeah. Um, you know, uh, you know, what you, what we've largely been having is that we've been having a rhetorical battle. We've been saying it should be okay to challenge, um, you know, activists on the ground, you know, have been saying it should be okay for decision makers to challenge the way that things have been. And I think when I talk about just how, how hard the institution fights to preserve itself, I think what we're witnessing is the institution saying, no, you don't even get to have that discussion. 
You don't even get to have the discussion, much less do the thing. No, you don't even get to have the goddamn discussion. That's what we're seeing yeah. all this backlash for, is that the fact that you would even have policymakers having the discussion is a non-starter. That's really what we're debating here. As, as the system you're arguing against and in favor of changing crumbles all around us. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Don't, don't, don't come to me with your alternatives. No, no, no. <laughs> no, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Don't even, don't even articulate your alternatives. Don't contemplate them. Don't, certainly don't study them or fund them in any serious way. Just shut up. Shut up. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I, I've been joking about all the ways in which the institution has been trying to cleverly tell council members to shut up when we're raising very legitimate concerns. You know, um, you know, quasi-judicial, sort of like the, the tried and true way of, of telling council members that uh, they just have to shut up. Um, you know, but I, th- I think uh, lately with um, all these charter amendments that were gonna, that are going to be on the ballot, you know, administerial has become that new, you know, uh, synonym for just, you know, shut the hell up, stop asking questions. Yeah. I, was, uh, <laughs> I was shouting at my TV when I, Cam Gordon was asking questions about what is this strong mayor thing going to do? And the city attorney is like, no, we're not going to talk about that. You're just here to vote for it. I'm not going to give you any legal advice. I'm just the city in the city attorney's office. Why would I tell you what it does? Now, now, meanwhile, we're being told our role is administerial. We didn't draft the language, but we're being told our role is administerial. Um, but when the lawsuit happens, does the lawsuit say the language that the clerk and the attorney drafted, blah, 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 blah. No, it says the language that the city council passed, right? If my right. name's on it, then I'm a decision maker. Right, yeah. End of that. End right. of that. Uh, and so I think that, you know, um, these terms are like, you know, the liability still is going to land on the council one way or another. I'm, 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 I'm not going to allow anybody to tell me that, tell me to shut up, especially when they're wrong. You know, uh, now somebody in the, now if I'm going to go, uh, you know, maybe give some testimony at the state legislature and somebody there wants to tell me to shut the, you know, shut up. I, uh, I might think it's rude, but at, you know, I'm, I'm not a decision maker there, but when it's going to be my vote on the, on the count and you're telling me to shut up and that my role is ministerial or, blah, 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 blah. Like, no, this is, we're decision makers here. The courts are affirming that we're the decision makers here. So we're going to make the decision. So here's a potentially irritating question. I feel like when I ask this question to people, they feel like I'm asking them what they have flip-flopped on or or something like that. But uh, I'm genuinely curious because as I said before, I've been humbled by this past year Mm -hmm. uh, in my various belief systems, uh, feeling powerless in the face of larger forces. Mm-hmm. So over this first term, being an elected official, have you had to reevaluate any of your positions or attitudes or the way you think about the world since you were elected in response to like feedback you've gotten from constituents or just evolving events? Like how have your How's your outlook changed in any way? What have you learned in that way? Yeah. You know, I, I, um, I feel like I've certainly learned a lot of information, like a lot of information. Like I, I didn't necessarily, you know, I knew my basic position on like affordable housing, but I don't think I could have like told you like exactly what 
9% 4% credits were or like it, you know kind of walk you through affordable housing finance or you know I wouldn't have been able to design something like a commercial property development fund in my first you know day in office right so I certainly learned a lot of information that helped me craft labor policy and helped me um, aim towards my goals a little bit more um, completely um, I'm trying to think if there's just an issue that I thought of one way and then I just completely ended up flipping on. Um, no, there, there definitely have been, you know, I think some, some issues that I've seen as that I would have seen as incredibly black and white outside of office that like inside of office there, there definitely are some more things to consider. Right. Um, you know, uh, I don't want to get, um, you know, Councilmember Cunningham, you know, you know, screaming at his computer when he watches this. But like, you know, I think as an outsider, I definitely would have probably taken a little a more of a black and white view on like the Upper Harbor Terminal project. Right. I probably okay. would have been some of those voices that was like, this is all bad, you know, blah, 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 you know. But then you learn like, you know, how much things cost and like you start to kind of weigh, you know, what's likely and you start to kind of figure it out. You know, I'm still more I'm, I'm still more amenable to what what the uh, what the community wants to us to fight for than probably most council members, but I don't do it without some understanding, some intimate understanding of why council members are making the decisions that they're making, right? And I think we're often, you know, you can, it's easy from the outside to say like, well, obviously this person, this council member doesn't care about fresh food in my community, or obviously this council member doesn't care about gentrification or whatever, right? When the truth is that, you know, um, there's a lot to weigh. And, 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 and often, even when I'm not agreeing with where my colleagues are landing, I can see their work. If they're working hard, I can see their work and I can see why they're landing there. Um, uh, whereas before, I would have just been like, this person's phony. They don't care about the thing I care about. It's not necessarily the case. So, you know, having uh, maybe, maybe, I don't know, I, you know, now that I say that out loud, I'm like, yeah, is empathy for people in power really what I want to like walk away with? But like, you know, um, you know, but, but, but certainly, you know, consideration of, of, of multiple viewpoints. And sometimes people genuinely don't care about the things you care about. Right. Uh, and learning to know the difference, right. Not everybody is acting in good faith, but not everybody's acting in bad faith either. And um, I think that often we can, we can, create that binary pretty, pretty easily. That is the first satisfying answer I've gotten to that question. Somebody oh. <laughs> actually, actually admitting that they have evolved on an issue. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> well, there you go. Uh, so people, people don't know this about the podcast, but I never tell anyone how long this is going to go. Cause I don't know how long it's going to go, but we've been here for 70 minutes. Yep. And uh, thank you to Jeremiah Ellison. I do have one final question. It's about recommendations, thinking about what, what is making you happy lately? What do you use to put yourself in a good mood, either like entertainment or a walk in a specific park, a movie, a book, a TV show, a game, anything? What could you tell people to, to start ingesting and making themselves feel better? Um, well, I bought a COVID puppy. And which is now uh, 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 basically a fully grown Great Dane sitting behind me here. And uh, and so walking her and she's got a lot of still young. She needs to exercise. 
and it has forced me, you know, I can't do a walk around the block. I got to go like on a two hour hike, you know, in order to get my dog sufficiently, you know, exercised. So, you know, um, doing like my, I have my neighborhood walks, my routes that I go on uh, in the neighborhood, but then trying to do a, a really long walk in like a state park uh, on, on, on like Sunday when I don't have too much Sunday morning, when I don't have too much going on. Um, that's been great, you know. Download all trails and, uh, you know, uh, do the paid version. I think it's worth it if you can. And uh, go go walk. Um, I really enjoyed uh, James Gunn's Suicide Squad. Uh, so if anybody wants to watch that uh, movie, I would recommend that you go watch that movie. If you're going to the theater, be safe. Um, and then, um, you know... Uh, Vince Staples and Isaiah Rashad both put out albums these last couple of months. So uh, that makes me happy. So uh, hopefully people can go listen to those and, uh, uh, and uh, I don't know, drive around in your car. No, don't drive around in your car. Don't do that. This is no, the Much well, Live podcast. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> bike around on your bike, go yes. on a walk and listen yeah. to these albums and, um, you. you know, buy a dog that, uh, that, that needs a lot of exercise. Um, don't get frustrated with the dog during the puppy phase and, um, and, uh, you know, drop it off at a church or whatever. Just, just get through it, get through it. Puppy phase is hard. You know, you can clean up poop in your living room. It's fine. Mm. Um, and, uh, and it's worth it. Uh, and, um, don't be lazy. Uh, you know, watch a couple of YouTube videos and learn how to dog train. Jesus, you know, it's good advice. Thank you. Is there anything else, Jeremiah Allison? Have I forgotten anything that we need to include here? Don't feel um, obligated to have a closing statement if you don't want to. No, I don't have a closing statement. I, I think this is great. I, I, I'm, I'm glad I just got to get on here and, and, and kick it with you. Um, you know, didn't, didn't feel like um, I'm debating on the doors, which, which I'm happy to do, uh, but it's nice to get a break from. So. We, we'll grill you next time. <laughs> Sounds good. Okay. This- Sounds good. This has been the Wedge Live Podcast. I'm your host, John Edwards. My guest has been Jeremiah Ellison, who is the city council member in Ward 5 in North Minneapolis, who's running for re-election. I will be endorsing him. I think I have already. But uh, get out there and vote this November. This is a real, real, real thing. Real, 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 real thing. None of you have the balls to stop, stop this. We're in the wedge neighborhood right now, 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 right now.